Well, good morning, everybody. It is so wonderful to see you here this morning. I'm looking forward to opening up to the book of Mark one final time for our series. In a moment, I'll do that. But before I do so, I just want to take a moment to thank all those who came out this past week for our week of prayer. It was so special. Yes, you can clap for that. And in particular, Friday night, we culminated the week with a special night of prayer and worship. It was a special time to hear stories of answered prayer. It was also special to hear very personal requests and to be able to pray for you. So thank you for being part of that. Uh, we're looking forward to making this a, a regular part of our rhythm. It was just so neat to be able to gather together. And I want to take a moment to give a special thanks to our worship arts ministry. They just... Yeah. They really worked hard to lead us in worship on a Friday night. Well, this is the final sermon in our series through the Gospel of Mark that started way back on March 6th. It's been eight months of diving into God's Word in the Gospel of Mark and learning what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be like Jesus. So the title of this final message is Our Response to the Risen King. Our response, now that we've learned about Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. What is our response to the risen King? We'll be in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, and I'll read that passage in just a moment. But for one last time, we are going to review the three acts that Mark has laid out for us in his Gospel. I introduced this act, this three-act uh, drama to you way back on March 6th. And if you recall, Act 1 took place in Galilee. And that's chapters 1 through 8a. And in Act 1, the crowds, they witnessed Jesus performing miracles and healings and casting out impure spirits. And they marveled. So they asked themselves a question, who is this Jesus? They were amazed by what they saw. That was Act 1. Act 2 took place between chapters 8b and 10. And in Act 2, there was a different question that was asked, and it was asked by a different group of people. It was the disciples who were asking the question. And the question they asked was, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And the answer to that question was something that they wrestled with because they realized, wait a minute, not only will it impact the life of Jesus, it will also impact our own lives. And by the way, here in the 21st century, the answer to that question, it impacts all of our lives as well. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? In Act 3, which we've been in for the last several weeks, we've been in Jerusalem in Act 3. So we went from Galilee and then on the way to Jerusalem. And Act 3 focuses its attention on the paradox, the paradox of Jesus becoming king. And last week, we saw how Jesus took our guilt. He took our shame upon himself when he hung on the cross. And guess what? We took on his righteousness. He took on our guilt, our shame. He gave us his righteousness. But thankfully, we know that Jesus did not stay on the cross. 
and he did not stay in the tomb. The tomb is empty. He has risen. Now, what's so neat about that statement, he has risen, usually we reserve that statement for Easter Sunday. So it's kind of nice to actually say he has risen on a day other than Easter. So here we are in the fall. But whether we say that in springtime or fall, the tomb is empty. Now, empty is usually associated with things that are not all that great, right? So, for example, an empty house might make you feel lonely. An empty fuel tank might make you feel nervous. An empty checking account might make you feel depressed. And, of course, an empty stomach will make you feel hangry and embarrassed. Now, have you ever had your stomach growl at the most inopportune time in front of other people? It is so embarrassing. You try to like cough, <laughs> you cough over your growling stomach or you crinkle paper, you try to work your way, you know, just kind of squirm because it's embarrassing when you have an empty stomach. An empty stomach can make you feel very uneasy, but an empty tomb is a good thing because an empty tomb gives us assurance. Jesus is alive, and today we're going to talk about that empty tomb. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 16. I'll read the first eight verses in its entirety, verses 1 through 8, and you can also follow along here on the screen as well. Mark 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Throughout his gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus over and over told his disciples that he would have to suffer many things, that he would be killed, but on the third day he would rise from the grave. And chapter 16 is evidence that he made good on his promise. Chapter 16 is a proof that Jesus fulfilled his promise, and you can always count on Jesus to fulfill his promises. You can always count on Jesus. And, and by the way, nobody likes broken promises, do they? Nobody likes empty promises. We've seen enough ads 
over the years filled with empty promises. A few years ago, there was one particular ad, a very popular ad, about a weight loss product. And it made some big claims. The ad went something like this. Stop eating three hours before going to sleep. And then take a spoonful of the delicious evening weight loss formula in an eight-ounce glass of water. And then watch the weight melt off. There's no need to exercise. That sounds great. No need to exercise. Just watch the melt. I mean, watch the weight melt off. It sounds good. It sounds too good to be true, which is why you always want to read the fine print. So I read the fine print of this ad, and here's what the fine print said. These results are not typical. <laughs> the average consumer should not expect to experience the attested results. And this final line, it really uh, left me shaking my head. The three-phase weight loss system is based on a behavior modification program, which involves eating less, eating healthier, increasing physical activity. Notice they didn't say exercise. And it's supported by dietary supplements and meal replacements. Come on, anybody could lose weight if you just gave up food. So you can understand why the makers of this product were forced to remove their ads. We know that our society is filled with empty promises. Thankfully, God's promises are different. Instead of promises full of emptiness, the empty tomb is assurance that God fulfilled his promise. We just read that a group of Jesus' followers, women, to be exact, were on their way to the tomb. It's early dawn, and you can imagine as they're walking to the tomb, the mood is subdued. And that's because the task before them is a sad one. These women are going to anoint the body of Jesus. And Mark gives us the names of these three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and then Salome. If you were with us last week, you'll recall that I mentioned that Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four gospels. And what that means is Mark was very intentional about what he included and did not include in his gospel. He was very intentional. He organized it so deliberately. And that's why we have three distinct acts in his gospel. And he was so intentional that he would name people by their names or not name them whenever he talked about people in his gospel. And there was a reason why he named certain people and he did not name other people. You see, whenever Mark in his gospel names somebody, it's because that person that he names has some connection to, some association with, and is known by Mark's audience. So when people would read Mark's gospel, if they saw a name, they're like, oh yeah, I know so-and-so. So there was a personal connection 
So that's why Mark was always deliberate when he named certain people. And so Mark names Mary Magdalene. And right away, his audience, they knew her. They knew her because she was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So he didn't want to keep her anonymous. And then he names Mary the mother of James. By the way, this is not James, the brother of John, the two disciples. And it gets confusing because there's so many people with the same name in the Bible. So many Marys, so many Jameses, so many Simons. This is Mary, the mother of James, and James's brother is Joseph. We'll talk about them in just a second. But the reason why Mark includes a family association is because his audience, they didn't know James's mom, Mary, that well. But they knew James, so right away, if Mark said, oh, Mary, the mother of James, his audience knew who he was talking about. Many people in the Bible, they're described by their family associations. And in many cultures today, that's still the case. In my culture growing up, rarely would I ever call an adult by his or her first name. Rarely. I only knew adults by, uh, like, oh, there's Johnny's dad. Or, or there's Susan's mom. And so as a little kid, I just thought that's their name. That's Johnny's dad. That's the name of the person, Johnny's dad. Because we just didn't learn their first names because it was important to be called by your title or a family association. And so I just grew up saying, oh, there's Johnny's dad, Susan's mom. Or everybody was auntie to me or uncle, right? Even if they weren't related to me. Oh, there's aunt so-and-so, uncle so-and-so. And that's still the case in many cultures today. You just call them by their family associations. So back then, family associations were so important that Mark made it a point to say, Mary, the mother of James. Now notice the third person, Salome. He just says, Salome. He doesn't include her family association. You know why? Because his audience, they knew Salome. They knew her well. They knew her as a disciple of Jesus. Salome was the wife of Zebedee. And she was also the mother of James and John, the two disciples. But Salome was well known. So Mark just says, Salome. Last week, when we were in chapter 15, we were introduced to these three women. In fact, I want to take you back to chapter 15. Go back to chapter 15 and look at verses 40 and 41 again. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So we were introduced to these three women last week in chapter 15. We're reintroduced to them here in chapter 16. But here's what's amazing about Mark's gospel. Did you know for the vast majority of his gospel, for the first 14 chapters Mark never mentions any women by name. If you were to go back and flip through all the chapters, he talks about many women, but he never mentions any women by name. Now, why? Here's the reason. 
throughout much of Mark's gospel, Peter is the key witness. So as Mark is writing his gospel, he's writing through the eyes of Peter. So whatever Peter experiences, Mark pens for us. So for the vast majority of the gospel of Mark, Peter is the key witness. But let's go back to chapter 15. When Jesus stood before Pilate, and then when Jesus was sentenced to death, and then when Jesus hung on the cross, Peter was nowhere to be found. You see, Peter, like the other disciples, they abandoned Jesus. They fled. They failed Jesus, just like Jesus said they would do. But as we just read in Mark 15, these three women with other women, they watched as Jesus was being crucified. And it tells us they watched from a distance. The reason why they watched from a distance was they wanted to be respectful of Jesus on the cross because it was shameful. It was an embarrassment to be hanging on a cross. So out of honor and respect, they watched from a distance their Messiah being crucified. And so chapters 15 and 16 are seen through the eyes of these women. It's remarkable. It is absolutely remarkable. And what we see throughout chapters 15 and 16 are these women observing, seeing, looking. And Mark is intentional in how he describes these three women in the last two chapters. He says, these women watched from a distance. When they were walking to the tomb, they looked up and saw that the stone was rolled away. Upon entering the tomb, they saw a young man, an angel. And this angel told them, look, he is not here. And he also told them, go. He's gone ahead of you, and there you will see him in Galilee. Mark was intentional in communicating to us the important role that these women played in the life and ministry of Jesus. He did this at a time when women were given little, if any honor and respect. In fact, when these women went and told the disciples, you know what happened? They didn't believe these women. The disciples said, you're talking nonsense. Later in the first century, the account of these women being the first ones to witness the empty tomb, that account was a source of embarrassment for the early church. Why? Because women were considered 
to be not, not credible witnesses. But here's the beauty of God's word. The gospel writers made sure that you and I would know just how important a role these women would play in the life and ministry of Jesus. Let's think about Jesus' final days on earth during his ministry. If you recall, before Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, remember on that Sunday, the triumphal entry, before he made his way in, he was anointed by Mary. This is another Mary, okay? This is like the third Mary we're talking about today. He was anointed by Mary of Bethany. Mary was the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. And so before Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, he was anointed when Mary broke the alabaster jar of expensive perfume. She poured it over Jesus, and she anointed him. It was God's will that Jesus would be anointed because God knew that in those final days leading to the cross, Jesus would not get the honor he deserved. So Mary of Bethany honored her Savior. That was the start of Passion Week. It ends with Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome witnessing the empty tomb. This is absolutely remarkable that Mark features these disciples of Jesus in the final two chapters of his gospel. Let's look at verse 8 again. Trembling and bewildered, these women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. When they left the tomb, they were speechless. They were shocked. So their immediate response was to say nothing. But we know from the other gospels that they went and they told the disciples. Now, at the end of verse 8, in your Bibles, you might have a footnote. Or you might have several more verses in brackets. The ending of Mark's gospel has sparked some discussions and debates over the years. So let's talk about that for a minute. The reason why your translation might have a footnote or bracketed verses is because there's a question as to whether verses 9 through 20 were part of Mark's original gospel. Are you familiar with the uh, phrase, the saying, it's all Greek to me? It's all Greek to me. Usually when someone says that, they just mean, well, I don't understand it. It's like me in high school calculus class. It was all Greek to me. I didn't understand what they're talking about. I'm just glad calculus is long, long gone. And so when we think about the Bible, what we want to understand is this. The Bible has been translated into over 700 languages. And the New Testament alone has been translated into 1,500 languages. And the fact that you are reading your particular translation of the Bible, it tells us one thing. 
It tells us that somebody or some persons had to have translated the Bible from the original languages into the receptor language. Today, if you were to hop on an airplane and fly to Washington, D.C., and if you entered the National Archives, you could actually see the handwritten Declaration of Independence by Thomas Jefferson. You could actually go there and see the original. When it comes to the Bible, we don't have the original manuscripts, the original documents. But don't worry. Don't worry. We have many, many, several thousand manuscripts, handwritten documents, copied from generation after generation. And so the scholars of your particular translation, because here, you know, there, there may be different translations that you're using. Okay. The scholars of your particular translation, what they did was they referred back to manuscripts, and they studied these manuscripts to determine how to compile the written word, the Bible. And one of the tasks of these scholars is to uh, compare places where certain manuscripts might be a little bit different from other manuscripts. Keep in mind, we don't have the original writings, right? And so we're relying upon copies. And so it's important to compare these manuscripts. Now, I know you all want to be good Bible students, right? Yes. So you all want to be good Bible students, so it's important to learn a, a term. I'm going to introduce or maybe reintroduce a term to you, and it's the term textual criticism. Textual criticism is a system used to discover the original texts of ancient documents. And textual criticism is a term you hear in the academic world quite often. But it's good as Bible students to know about textual criticism. It's beneficial for us to be introduced to this term. And by the way, I think it's pretty cool that we're talking about textual criticism in an age where the most popular mode of communicating is text messaging. I think God has a sense of humor here, okay? Have you ever texted somebody who's sitting in the next room? Because it's just too hard to get up and go and talk to them, right? Oh, it's just much better for me just to text. Or have you ever texted somebody who's in the same room as you? Some of you have done that in here, right? What do you want for lunch? I'm getting hungry. Well, let's think about text messaging. You know that text messaging has a language all of its own, right? It, the world of texting has its own language. So, so when you're texting someone, you don't write out the words, let me know. Right? That's silly. It's LMK. Right? It's LOL. It's BFF. Okay? If, if you don't know what those mean, just come see me afterward, all right? Uh, IDK, there, you don't know. Uh, or TIA, right? And these are all, by the way, these are all old school abbreviations. What, what's TIA? Anybody TIA? Thanks in advance. There, good. So if you don't know some of these things, uh, just, you know, uh, come and see me afterward. But all these abbreviations, these are old school abbreviations. New ones pop up all the time, every single day. Sometimes I think it takes a texting scholar to decipher text messaging. 
And some of you, have you ever looked at your text messages from somebody else? You're like, what in the world are they saying? It makes no sense whatsoever. Well, just like we have texting criticism, today we're talking about textual criticism. And it's important to know this concept when looking at the end of Mark's gospel. Over the years, experts in textual criticism have discovered, they've preserved, and they've evaluated a number of biblical manuscripts from both the Old and New Testaments. And the number of existing manuscripts, it's, it's into the thousands. It far outnumbers all of the ancient literature. So the question is this. How does texting or textual criticism, how does that apply to Mark's gospel? And in particular, the end of Mark's gospel. Again, your translations may have a footnote, and your translation may even have verses 9 through, 10, uh, 9 through 20. While many of the later manuscripts do include verses 9 through 20, two of the oldest and most reliable and most accurate manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And when we talk about manuscripts, it's important to go back. And usually the older documents, the ones that are closest to the originals, are reliable. You know how it is, like, you ever play the, the game telephone? Like, it, once information gets passed on and on and on, sometimes it kind of loses its authenticity. And so two of the oldest manuscripts and most reliable ones do not include verses 9 through 20. Beyond that, we can actually look at the internal evidence of those verses. You see, when you read those verses, you can read those on your own, the style does not match up. This reads very different from the rest of Mark's gospel. It's not consistent. And as you know, we all have our own style of talking and writing. And the more familiar you are, familiar you are with somebody, the, the more you understand their style, right? So I know Joanne's style of writing. I know her style of talking. I know how Andrew, my son, writes and talks. I know how Amanda, my daughter, writes and talks, right? I know how my staff writes emails, okay? If I didn't even see their email address and if they didn't put their name at the bottom, I could tell you right away who wrote that email to me based upon their style, right? Because when we're familiar with people, we understand their style. And when you read verses 9 through 20, it is not the style of Mark. Are you familiar with the, uh, the practice known as fishing? Not, not, you know, catching a fish, but P-H, right? P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. Phishing is basically when somebody sends you an email or a message uh, pretending to be someone else. And usually they're, they're trying to get information from you, right? Or, or kind of cheat you out of money or something, right? And so this is interesting because over the last couple of years, some of you have received emails from people pretending to be me. And many of you have actually emailed me back or text messaged me back or even called me, hey, Tim. I got this email from you 
but it doesn't sound like you. And I'm like, thank you for reaching out to me. Because normally the emails want something like this. Uh, so-and-so, uh, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go to the store and buy me three gift cards of large amounts of money. <laughs> and so that sounds pretty fishy. It doesn't sound like me. And so they will reach out to me. Tim, was that you? I said, no, that wasn't me. They're like, good, because it didn't sound like you. And so the remaining verses don't sound like Mark. And so I believe that Mark's gospel ends after verse 8 of chapter 16. And I believe it's actually consistent with Mark's style of writing. Now, one possible explanation of the remaining verses is that maybe somewhere along the line, maybe a scribe looked at the documents, looked at the previous manuscripts, and thought, huh, Mark's gospel seems a bit incomplete. It seems to end so abruptly. So maybe some well-intentioned scribe thought, you know, what? I'm going to compile some information from the other gospels and other information and kind of compile it. But when you look at the internal evidence, it's just not Mark's style. So I believe Mark ends after verse 8. And again, I think this is consistent with his style. I think this is the brilliance of God. In Act 1, the crowds ask the question, who is this Jesus? They marvel at the works of Jesus. Fast forward to chapter 16 and verse 8. These three women, they are in astonishment. They are speechless. They marvel. The risen king has made good on his promise. The tomb is empty. So their first response was speechless. But then they went and they proclaimed to the disciples, He has risen. So, as we close out the series, my question to all of us is this. What should, our, what should be our response? What should be our response to the risen king? Back on March 6th, on the first day of our series, I gave you a takeaway. And we've talked about that takeaway every so often. And I'm going to leave you with that takeaway today. The takeaway of the Gospel of Mark is this. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. If you were here last week, you might recall we talked about the idea of going the extra mile going above and beyond, when the Roman soldiers pulled Simon of Cyrene from the crowd and when they forced him to carry the cross of Jesus because Jesus was struggling under the way of the cross, you know the Roman soldiers, they were actually doing something that was permitted by law. There was a law that stated a Roman soldier could grab somebody off the street and force that person to carry a heavy object for up to a mile. And that was permitted by law. So you could serve as a porter 
transporting goods for the Roman military. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if someone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two miles. He was referring to that Roman law. Last week when I shared that, I also shared about how if we were forced to carry heavy jugs of water, that's hard work, right? Imagine having to carry heavy jugs of water for a mile. And Jesus says, go two miles. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of manual labor. It's heavy. Well, guess what? God has a sense of humor because he often makes it such that I have to practice what I preach. So here's what happened this past week. On Monday, the very next day, right? Because last Sunday I preached about going the extra mile, carrying heavy jugs of water. The very next day I get a call from Joanne's mom. And, you know, Joanne's mom rarely calls me. She calls Joanne first. And she only calls me if, you know, she can't get a hold of Joanne. And so I see her name on the phone, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, something must be wrong. You know, Joanne's dad, uh, he recently turned 91. They recently moved into a, a senior a community, and, uh, you know, we've been concerned about his health. And so I'm thinking, oh, something must be wrong with Joanne's dad. So I picked up the phone. And it wasn't that, thankfully. He's, he's healthy. He's doing good. Uh, when I picked up the phone, Joanne's mom said, oh, Tim, uh, sorry to bother you. Right? And so, I'm sorry to bother you, but can you do me a favor? Can you bring me two gallons of water? I'm like, okay. And also bring some empty shopping bags, grocery bags. I'm like, okay. This is an interesting request, right? Two gallons of water and some empty shopping bags. So I hang up. And of course I said, sure, no problem. I'll be there. And I was on the road. I was heading home. I was ready to just turn in for the day. Right? You know, that, you know that feeling, that tired feeling? You're like, I just want to go home, kick my feet up, and just relax. But my mother-in-law calls. She needs two gallons of water and some empty shopping bags. So I go home, get those items. I get back in the car, and I make my way down. And I'm thinking, oh, what does she need this for? And it dawned on me, she probably wants the empty bags to, to send me home with food. <laughs> and, and the water, gallons, those are just like excuses to get me there, Right? So I pull into the parking lot, and in their residential community, you park in the guest parking, which is several, you know, hundreds of yards away from the, uh, their entrance. And so I get out of the car, I go to the back, I get my two gallons of water, and I'm carrying these jugs of water across the parking lot, and I, I laugh out loud to myself, thinking, wait a minute, I just preached about this, about heavy jugs of water. I mean, they weren't very heavy, Okay. But the fact that I'm carrying these bottles of water going into the residential community. I knock on the door. She answers the door. I give her a hug. I put the bottles down. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? That's good. I can now just go home and relax. I'm thinking I've done my good deed. 
I'll go home. She said, why don't you come in for a bit? And why don't you sit down? And you have to understand, uh, Joanne's dad, for as, long, for as long as I've known him, he's been, you know, his words are very uh, concise. He doesn't talk a whole lot. And in the last few years, he has uh, rarely said any words. And so you can imagine her mom probably doesn't have a whole lot of opportunities throughout the day just to talk to somebody. And, and Joanne's mom is the kind of person where if you ask her one question, she could talk for three hours <laughs> on just that one question. And, and there are some people like that, right? You ask a question, you could just talk forever and ever and ever, right? And so when she said, why don't you come and sit for a bit, Tim? I'm like, okay, I better get comfortable now. Thinking I'm not going home right away. So we sit, and I ask her a question. And she proceeds to share and share. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, God, you are a good God. I mean, is it too much for me to sit there and listen to my mother-in-law? Is it too much for me? Does it cost me anything to be there and to give her the pleasure of talking? I'm thinking, God, you are such a good God. I'm thinking, God, you give us so many opportunities every day to go above and beyond, to go the extra mile. It cost me very little to go out of my way, to go to their place, to drop off some water and sit for a bit. Every day that you and I have breath, God gives us opportunity after opportunity to not only fulfill a task, but to go the extra mile, to go above and beyond, to bring joy to someone. And when we do that, here's what happens. We take our eyes off of ourselves and we fix them on Jesus. Because when Jesus walked to the cross and when he hung on the cross, he took our shame and our guilt and he bore it so that we would receive his righteousness. Do you want to be great? I do. I don't know many people who want to be mediocre. If you want to be great, true greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. And with that, we bring the Gospel of Mark to a close. Join us next Sunday. We start a new series. I know you're going to be inspired. The new series is called Storyline, God's Purpose Fulfilled Through People Like Us. Let's pray together. Father, you are a good God. We praise you. We adore you. We worship you. 
You are a loving God. You are a merciful God. You're a gracious God. You are a patient God. And you are a forgiving God. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he went to the cross, that he bore our guilt and shame. In exchange, we thank you that we've been made righteous. Not because we ourselves are righteous, but we have taken on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So God, help us to be like him, to live like him, and to love like him. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.